This is Attica Locke, and you're listening to Writer Types. Hi there, this is Ian Rankin. I'm Don Winslow. This is Kelly Garrett. Hi, this is Sophie Hanna. This is Alex Segura. Really good question. Well, that's an interesting question. That is such a great question. <laughs> that's a great question. I'm Alifair Burke, and this is Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and I am back with another episode ahead of schedule. I figured you all probably need something to listen to and you need some more ideas of what to read next, so I'm here for you. Now, I'm on my own again uh, this week, and I'm gonna get right to it because you don't tune in to hear me yapping. Uh, and it's way more fun to talk to someone than to sit here and talk to myself, although I have a feeling we've all been doing that a lot more lately, right? Well, my first guest is Scott Phillips, author of The Ice Harvest, Cottonwood, The Walkaway, among others, and now his latest, That Left Turn at Albuquerque. Scott's signature blend of dark humor and despicable characters has earned him a cult following, and I will proudly call myself a member of that cult. So here's my chat with Scott Phillips. Well, Scott Phillips, uh, at long last, welcome to Writer Types. Uh, I really enjoyed your latest novel, that Left Turn at Albuquerque. And uh, I got to say, it is filled with what I can only describe as very Scott Phillips kind of characters. <laughs> these, are, these are people with, uh, I don't know, shall we say a questionable moral center? Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that's 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 true. I don't think there's anybody in the book who isn't a little bit of a scumbag. I mean, even <laughs> even Nina, the assistant, is is the one who comes up. You know, I I kind of thought of her as a uh, at least a likable character, but uh, they're all scum. <laughs> well, what what is so appealing about these types of people? I mean, I know I these are the kind of people. I love to read about, and yeah, you know, yeah. for me, maybe it's because I, I'd, I'd like to think that it's it's so different from my own life. I, I you know, I, I read to be taken to a different place and get out of my day to day. So hopefully, that speaks well of me that I'm not this much of a scumbag. <laughs> well, I always think maybe it's a little bit of surrogacy. You know, actors will always tell you that it's more fun to play scumbags than it is to play noble heroes. Right. Um, it's. It, I don't know. I don't know why I'm interested in people like that they're just they're easier to write too <laughs> they're easier to make interesting because if you've got someone who's always going to do the right thing or worry about doing the right thing then that's pretty normal it's just easier to take somebody who's rationalizing doing the wrong thing that's interesting to me uh, do you think it's is it like a cynical uh, view of the world or are you just uh, are you a realist about human nature oh i think i'm a realist i don't think people are you know, as awful as they are in my books, by and large. Uh, <laughs> I mean, lots of people are, but I think most people are a little bit crooked in ways they don't always recognize. Or admit to themselves. <laughs> or admit to themselves, yeah. Well, this one's this book certainly has a little bit of everything. You, you've got uh, drug deals, art forgery, yeah. uh, some questionable law practices. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Those lawyers. <laughs> Does this come from personal experience, bad experiences with lawyers on your part? No, no. You know, I have a lot of friends who are lawyers, actually, a, a surprising number of friends who are lawyers, and they don't seem to mind the way I depict them, uh, their, their, their trade in, in books. Lawyers are lawyers for a lot of different reasons. If you want to be crooked, it's useful to be a lawyer. <laughs> 
Well, you've also moved the action in this one uh, from your beloved hometown of Wichita, Kansas, uh, out to California. And it's not exactly a flattering portrayal of Californians, I must say. Well, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's Ventura, California, Santa Barbara, Montecito, those places around there, Ojai, which is a little bit different. It's not, it's not L.A. Yeah. Uh, it's not San Francisco. It's kind of its own little thing. And uh, I lived there for a while. And to me, it was just an interesting place to set uh, a book because there's, you know, you talk about income inequality. There's some serious income inequality up there. Uh, yeah. you know, you've got in Montecito, you've got some of the richest people in the country. And in, you know, Ventura, Oxnard, you've got some very, very poor people. And, you know, these things, they rub against each other. There's friction, which is interesting to me. Yeah, well, then, then that friction creates drama, right? Right, exactly. But I wanted to set something, you know, contemporary and in a place I knew fairly well. I don't like really writing about where I'm living. I find that difficult. I find it easier to live write about a place I used to live. Huh, that's interesting. Wait, do you think that it, just the distance gives you a different perspective? Yeah, it does. And I don't relate it to things I'm going through right now. No one can accuse you of being like, hey, you, that's me with a different name you, you wrote about. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, people do that all the time. Well. <laughs> people always think it's them, and it never is. <laughs> well, one thing you like to do is you like revisiting characters. Uh, several yeah. of your characters pop up in other novels that, that you know, you can't call direct sequels necessarily, how does this like is is that something that you go in planning it out, but or do these people sort of crop up into a plot that you're already working on in your head? Well, if if I'm my my second book, um, The Walk Away, I had a lot of characters from my first book that I, I felt like I could do more with. Yeah, and that was as much a factor as anything in making that book sort of a sequel to Ice Harvest. But I. I I come back to characters because I feel like sometimes I just, I haven't, I'm not finished with them. And is that something like, are, are you one of those writers who says that the, it's the character who's telling you that they're not done or do you not no, put that I, much? That's a little spooky kooky. You know, okay, good. <laughs> I, I, but I do feel like if you've invested enough in them that they are believable to a reader then they've got enough substance that you can go back and, you know, for example, um, I think if you're going to take a character and do something really unbelievable that doesn't jibe with the way that character has worked in the past, I haven't seen it, but, you know, they brought Picard back from Star Trek The Next Generation. Now, here's a character that they established very well. You know, so people have expectations. You can do new things with him, but you can't have him, you can't have him be a serial killer suddenly. Right, you know what I mean. It's uh, characters have rules and things you can't do with them. Yeah, it's it's always confusing to me that uh, one of the reasons that I never really got into comics that much, and and I've probably just lost a lot of listeners by saying that. But <laughs> the the idea of you know having a character that was created you know back in like the 30s or 40s, and then it's been written so often by so many different people. I mean, yeah, people cling to those things that are canon, you know, Batman's parents were killed in an alley and all this stuff. But then it's this weird thing of like you're handicapped by certain elements, but then you want to put your own twist on it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. And I guess even if you're the creator and and author of a character, you you are you're beholden to in the first book. He has blue eyes. so He's got blue eyes forever or whatever that is. Yeah. 
Uh, Julian Barnes famously noted that in uh, Madame Bovary, Emma Bovary has green eyes, blue eyes, uh, eyes with yellow flecks in them. Uh, you know, his, he, you know, the, he, he muses, a great book called Flaubert's Parrot. It's a novel, but it reads like history. And, you know, it's a terrific book. But he, he comes to the conclusion that this is not just Flaubert forgetting that he gave her blue eyes and then giving her something else. It's the, they look different under different lights. They're, oh, yeah. She's changing. Yeah, I think that's that's a thing with with comic books. I think with comic books also, it's just whatever era you grew up in. That that's your Batman, you know. That's right. your Superman or Spider Man or whatever. To go back to Star Trek, I grew up watching the original Star Trek, and that's the one I love the most. But we're kind of getting we're kind of getting off topic a little bit. Uh, well, I, I I always knew it was going to come around to Flaubert and Star Trek. That was... Yeah, Flaubert and Star Trek. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, okay. Uh, let, let's get way off topic here for a second, because you are also a very accomplished photographer. And I've, I, the pictures of yours that I've seen, I've, I find really gorgeous, uh, but I, I feel like they're, they're very objective. And, and uh, I guess uh, I don't, cold sounds like a negative term, but mm. there's no people in them. They're all these, you know, buildings and, and landscapes and stuff yeah. that I, I feel like I, I get a very sort of timeless sense because, you, you know, you like to take pictures of, of older building stuff that's maybe a little bit uh, dilapidated and stuff. And yeah. you get a sense of like, oh, the, I don't know if this picture was taken last week or in the 1950s. I mean, what yeah. when when you're out with your camera, what is that thing that strikes you as, OK, this is photo worthy? Anything that looks like it's not going to be there in five years. Oh. Uh, mostly it's architectural stuff. Remnants of architectural things, you know, abandoned motels. And um, I, I like signage a lot. And a lot of it is just, you know, Cottonwood in a way is the, is the story of a town and how it develops and how it changes and how things appear and disappear. And I think that's kind of what I'm going at in photography. I'm looking for things, you know, ghost signs, for example, is something I'm fascinated by. You can yeah. you can go by and see what you what a building used to be or what it what it used to advertise. There's just you know the faintest trace of whatever th- that that thing was that used to be a big big part of this downtown you know little small town somewhere or, or a big city. St. Louis has tons of them. Yeah, and very often I'll go back to a town a year later and find that something I took a picture of is gone. So, oh wow. Are there any parallels, do you think, in, in what you're trying to communicate in a photograph and what you're trying to communicate on a page? Are these completely sort of different arts art forms to you? Well, my friend J.B. Kaufman is a film historian. Silent films, early animation, silent animation even. I, I was talking to him one day about looking at an old picture. I almost feel like I'm there. I, mean, I really, even though this is black and white and it's not the greatest print in the world, I'm looking at the the signs on the facades and I'm looking at the cars going by and I feel like I'm there. And he said, we call that in, in film history retrieval. And I found that fascinating. And I, that is something I try to do when I'm writing historical fiction. I like that. You know, one thing that I find very useful is taking old phone books, old newspapers, old classified ads. One of the most useful things I ever got for a book for establishing atmosphere and just the legitimacy and just trying to get the details right was uh, 
bunch of classified ads that a friend of mine sent me from 1952. You know, you find out what a shirt press operator made per hour. <laughs> wow. So that kind of stuff. Yeah, I suppose there's there's a link there. Well, you know, before I let you go, I've, I I want to thank you on record and uh, for everyone to hear uh, for over eight years ago now, you uh, gave your blessing for me to copy your Noir at the Bar format uh, out oh. here in LA. <laughs> yeah. When I was debating doing this, I reached out to you and Jedediah Ayers, who've been doing it in St. Louis for years and years. And of course, we all we know it originated in uh, with Peter, Peter Rozowski in Philadelphia. Peter Rozowski, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but you guys really took up the mantle and started doing it, uh, you know, with with multiple authors and, and established, I think, the format that everyone knows. And I hope everyone does acknowledge that uh, the originators of this thing that has now grown like a weed all over the world is you know, out of your control. <laughs> it, yes, it is. And I, I often say it's the most culturally significant thing I've ever been involved with. And there's no way to make a penny off of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I really uh, <laughs> I wish I could get a, a little royalty or something, but uh, but yeah, it was Peter's idea, and I went to one. I went to what was supposed to be the last one ever uh, in Philly, and uh, I, I came back to St. Louis and mentioned it to Jed, and uh, Jed said, "Well, let's do it here." So I called Peter, and he said, "Yeah, go ahead," and then it just took off, and um, it's been a lot of fun. That's great. I mean, I think if I'm correct about this, after you guys, I think I was maybe the one of the first, the, the first franchise who yeah. uh, who hit you up, and then uh, after that, they just felt like dominoes. Yeah, was... yeah. Uh, but I'm I'm really pleased. I'm 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 proud of it, and I'm happy to have had a small part in keeping it going. Well, that left turn at Albuquerque is one that I can recommend for uh, for the noir fans out there, for the the people who like to read about uh, these people who are who who get what's coming to them, and, and perverts. It's good for perverts. It's a really yes, dirty sorry. book. It's a dirty book. <laughs> Well, and and obviously the the I'm well I, maybe not obviously I I took the title as sort of a nod to uh, Bugs Bunny. Am oh I, yeah, it, it is. Okay, good. <laughs> and it's a slight nod to to my uncle Phil, who he, the character of uh, Will Sagers the painter is not really based on my uncle, but uh, there are elements of Phil's life are in that character. In that uh, he was a very serious painter, but he made a living doing uh, backgrounds for cartoons. And he worked oh. at Warner Brothers. He worked with Chuck Jones. Uh, oh, wow. he, he worked for years at Hanna-Barbera. And uh, he didn't think much of it. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't take it very seriously, but he, you know, it, it allowed him to make a living as an artist. So that, that left turn at Albuquerque is a Bugs Bunny reference and a nod to, uh, to Phil. Well, I, I hope the uh, forgery is not a nod to him. No, as far as I know, uh, he never forged anything. But uh, I've always been fascinated by forgers and Elmer de Horry, who uh, is the subject of Orson Welles' film F for Fake, also a great oh. book called Fake by Clifford Irving. And uh, Van Meegeren, the, 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 the guy who forged Vermeers in World War II and sold him to the Nazis. And uh, when, when the war was over, he was accused of you know, selling the Nazis these national treasures. And he said, no, I was cheating them. I was, I was selling them <laughs> fakes. And they didn't believe him. And they, they said, all right, well, you, you paint one and you sell that. And they gave him paints and an easel and a canvas. And he faked one. 
and uh, they had to let him go. Wow, we should all be so lucky. Yeah. Get found out for our indiscretions and then be asked to prove it. Yeah. Well, in these very strange times, people are suffering big and small, and one group that is suffering definitely are indie bookstores. They've been banned from having people actually go into the stores, but many are still open online. They're shipping nationwide. A lot are offering great deals, and they have staff picks on their websites. So I wanted to take a minute here to highlight just a few of the stores that are still open for business. And we'll kick it off in Chicago at the Bookseller. Now that's seller, C-E-L-L-A-R, like a wine seller, because they sell both books and wine. Uh, And my sister, who is a frequent customer at this store, can uh, attest to the fact that that is a great combination. Uh, And I think the more wine you buy, it actually ends up being the more books you buy, or at least that is definitely true in her case. My name is Susie from the Bookseller Bookstore in Chicago, and you can send us a book order at B-O-O-K-C-E-L-L-A-R-I-N-C.com. Today, I am recommending The Lucky One by Lori Rader Day. It's every parent's nightmare. Alice Fine was kidnapped from her yard as a child. Luckily, she was found by the work of her father, who was a policeman. Alice comes by her survivor's guilt honestly, and so she spends her time attempting to solve crimes on the dough pages, where she believes she sees the man who stole her as a child. What I loved about this thriller is the character-driven plot, the setting in Chicago, and the quirky amateur sleuths on the dough pages. There are many hints within the story, so don't miss them by turning the pages too quickly. Enjoy. Well, down to Texas now for the legendary Murder by the Book in Houston. Hey, everybody. It's John at Murder by the Book. We are currently closed to the public because of the city's stay-at-home order, but we are remotely processing orders through the website, which is murderbooks.com. You can also shoot us an email at order at murderbooks.com or give us a call at 713-524-8597. We've got somebody monitoring the phones from 11 to 3, Monday through Saturday. If you don't get through, just leave a message and one of us will give you a call back. At the moment, we are offering free media mail shipping on orders over $50, so you can place an order through the website for that. We've got our staff picks pages updated, so there's a whole bunch of recommendations there. But our current favorite recommendations are The Daughter of Time by Josephine Tay and Laura Lippman's Girl in the Green Raincoat, because they're both really great mysteries about bedridden detectives solving crimes, which seems perfect for this time. We're also doing a series of video recommendations on the store's Facebook and Instagram pages. We are Murder Books on Instagram, and you can just search for Murder by the Book on Facebook. Each day, we're all um, sharing recommendations from our home from a book that we're excited about. We hope everybody is staying safe and taking care, and we can't wait to see everybody back in the store. Thanks so much. And up to Minnesota for the Once Upon a Crime bookstore. Hi, everyone. This is Devin from Once Upon a Crime in Minneapolis. I hope everyone is staying safe and healthy. Um, If you are looking for something to read, which, let's face it, everyone is right now, there are two great books coming out soon. The first is Erica Ruth Neubauer's Murder at the Mina House, out on March 31st. If you want to escape to a glamorous hotel in 1920s Egypt and solve a good old-fashioned murder with a witty heroine, this is the book for you. 
If you are looking for something a bit darker, a bit more twisted, check out Mindy Mejia's Strike Me Down out April 7th. When the prize money for a kickboxing tournament in Minneapolis goes missing, forensic accountant Nora Trier is hired to find it. But $20 million is a lot of money, enough for someone to kill for. Mindy will be doing an e-launch party for this book. You can find information on it and order signed copies right from our website. Thanks for all of your support. Take care. You can find that website at onceuponacrimebooks.indielight.org. And we'll have links to all these websites on our Twitter feed, at WriterTypes. You can also shoot Once Upon a Crime Books uh, an email at onceuponacrimebooks at gmail.com. Get your orders in. We head out to the desert now with Scottsdale, Arizona's The Poisoned Pen. Hey, this is Patrick Milliken from The Poisoned Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona. And like a lot of independent bookstores, where we find ourselves uh, coming up with new strategies to deal with the challenges of what we're all facing right now. And uh, we're doing a real robust mail order business. And right now we're offering free shipping for orders $25 and, and over. Uh, so check out our website, which is poisonedpen.com. We're also doing virtual events, uh, author events on Facebook Live and YouTube. Um, Eric asked me to, to mention a few books that I'm currently reading and enjoying. Uh, one of those is uh, by Michael Ferris Smith. It's called Blackwood, wonderful writer. Uh, just finished uh, William Boyle's uh, fantastic new book called City of Margins. Also recently loved uh, Steph Post's book, Holding Smoke. Um, what else? Uh, just getting ready to read Percival Everett's book, Telephone. He's a real hero of mine. And I just got my, my mitts on this new uh, biography of Robert Stone by Madison Smart Bell, which I can't wait to read. So anyway, that's what's going on out here, and thanks very much. Well, you know, it's not just bookstores. Indie publishers are open, too. So please go visit your favorite one online, and you can order direct. There are some great deals out there now, and you are really supporting these small businesses directly. Now, of course, I'm partial to Down and Out Books, uh, who publish a whole lot of my titles. Well, they are definitely open for business, and they have a great offer for you. Hi, Eric. This is Lance from Down and Out Books, and we are open for business. For people who are looking for books to read while practicing social distancing, we've discounted 39 of our most recently published digital books to $2.99 or less. Visit downandoutbooks.com bookstore and look for the green sale mark on these titles. Stay safe and know that we're all in this together. Well, there are so many more indie bookstores and publishers who need your support. The good news is you get a great book out of the deal, so it's really a win-win. You get to find your new favorite read and they get to stay in business and keep selling these amazing books. So, okay, it's time for another author interview. James Queeley is a name you've heard quite a few times lately on this show, and his debut novel is called Line of Sight, and it's out now from Polis Books. James is a reporter for the LA Times, so he's used to asking the questions, and it's time we flip it around on him, and he gets to be the one to answer them. 
James Quilly, uh, Line of Sight does not read like a debut novel. And I, I've said it before on the show, and even our resident reviewers, uh, the Malmans, uh, had the same feeling. I mean, this is uh, far too accomplished for a debut. So uh, who the hell do you think you are? Uh, I've been writing under a pen name of Michael Connolly for 30 years. This is time <laughs> I thought I would come out of the shadows. I knew it. <laughs> One thing you f you did is you fully embraced the write what you know uh, aesthetic with this novel, and your main character is a reporter, and you yourself are a reporter. So was was there any question uh, when plotting this out that you would write anyone but a reporter? I knew it was going to be a reporter story once I said it in Newark. Um, I was wrestling a little bit with the idea of whether he should be actively on the job or the situation you find him in where he's a PI, but he's barely even doing that job. Cause you know, it's any, like any thriller, right? Things need to get violent at some point. They need to get a little fist fighty. And by and large, uh, my tribe, we are not um, terribly adept when it comes to street combat. So, and I get, and I get a little fed up with uh, reporters portrayed in movies as action heroes. So I was a little leery of using a reporter character only for when things needed to get, you know, a little bit more aggressive, but at the same time, you know, I wanted to see a reporter portrayed accurately, and I figured I was relatively qualified to do that since it's all I spend all day doing. So your version of an accurate reporter portrayal is someone who would lose a fist fight. Uh, they, they would have a, they might have a sub 500 win loss record. I would say Russell, Russell successfully throws hands at certain points on the page. And I'm not going to say I'm, I'm O for life in throwdowns. I'm just saying they, I don't know. I mean, I, every time I see, see a reporter, we tend to get portrayed as not actually doing as much investigation or negotiation, you know, source romancing that you will see Russell play out in the book. They just seem to be kind of like extrapolations on the PI genre. Um, and I wanted to get away from that a little bit. And again, I mean, everything I know about Newark, I know through a lens of being a reporter. So I really couldn't see um, doing anything else for a main character. Well, it, to me, being a reporter, it, it does seem like a natural fit to being a novelist. I mean, you're used to the discipline of writing quite a lot. You're always uh, you know, focusing on your words and keeping it tight and keeping it focused. But is there some element of it where it's hard to remove that sort of journalistic discipline and objectivity and when you shift over into writing fiction is it does it end up really being more different disciplines than people might think there's differences i mean i think generally you're right there you know they live on the same street but maybe not in the same house um it's obviously a different voice uh, you have a lot more freedom writing fiction uh, I've seen Brad Parks, who also used to work for the Star Ledger and, you know, has written a number of crime novels, including with a reporter character, talk about this. We sometimes forget that there are no rules. You know, we still almost obsessively think about a plot twist or think about a character maybe doing something that they otherwise wouldn't normally do in reality. And we're just like, well, that would never happen, so we can't write it. And we forget we're making it up. I think he was explaining one of his books, there are gang members communicating via bird call. Which I agree, in Newark, that would probably not take place. But it's fiction, you can have some fun, you know, and I, and I sometimes find myself struggling with that too. And I've interviewed cops who have gone on to write fiction and they have the same problem. They, they worry about the technicalities of what would and wouldn't be in a police report instead of just advancing their plot. It's just, it's hard to turn that part of your brain off. 
Well, this book, it's very topical in its depiction of uh, race and police abuses. And these are things that have obviously been in the social conscience as well as the headlines in, in recent years. I mean, do you see a, a story like this, you know, just, just to sum it up quickly, I mean, Russell it gets caught up in this uh, videotape of uh, potential police abuse, and he has to sort of dig out the truth. It has sort of echoes of the stuff that sparked a lot of social unrest in you know places like Ferguson, Missouri, and things like that. So do you see this book as being very now, very 2020, or in a way, it, are kind of the race issues that he's dealing with um, kind of timeless? I mean, yeah, the, 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 the race issues definitely are, are timeless, but they're also timely in what you referenced, right? These discussions about whether police go too far, about proper use of force, about fatal encounters between, you know, suspects and police officers or just everyday citizens and police officers, those have been going on forever in certain communities. I don't know if they really got dragged into the American living room until 2014. Like you had mentioned, uh, Eric Garner in Staten Island, New York, the video of the shooting of Tamir Rice in Cleveland, Ferguson, which I was sent to cover as a reporter as well for a few days. And I think that was what really made me want to write the book more than anything else and made me okay with taking a bit of license and putting new work in this situation was because I wanted to write about a city that, you know, had long, has long had tense issues going on with its police. I wanted to take this conversation and put it in a city that I knew best. Now, how long have you been in LA? I mean, how long does it take for you to relocate to a place like this and have it start to feel like you would know a city like LA as intimately as you feel that you know Newark? So I've been in LA actually a little longer than I worked in Newark now. I think we're coming up on year six of me as a West Coast resident. Uh, And I will say, I still think I know Newark better than Los Angeles in part because it's smaller and in part because the way my job works changed. Uh, my first first gig at the Star-Ledger, which is the largest newspaper in New Jersey uh, and was the place I worked in Newark, I was a night crime reporter. So I was going to you know, less than stellar parts of the, of the city, uh, one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, you know, where I was really like the only eyes and ears of the public outside of that neighborhood. Wow. Kind of had to learn that city up and down because I had to tell those stories accurately because nobody else was going to do them. And on top of that, LA is just so massive compared to Newark that I don't think I know the nooks and crannies like I did there. It is an enigmatic city uh, at Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, when, when you're out there at two in the morning uh, hunting down the crimes that happen, I mean, is, is every day a new inspiration for a novel or a story? Is it, it, or do people have sort of a skewed perspective in that? Like, do most crimes end up being kind of boring and, and just rote? Uh, I mean, there's, there's an unfortunate truth to, uh, you know, this comes up a lot in the book, it's a plot point early that the the shooting in question that Russ is hired to investigate, um, he's initially thinking about shrugging it off because of where it happened and who it happened to and what time of night. He's just immediately like, this is a drug murder. There's no way it's anything but the stats don't necessarily disagree with that. You know, I don't have the percentages in front of me, but the bulk of the homicides I covered in Newark over the five years, and that was hundreds, were unfortunately often drug motivated intra-gang beef, gang-associated, you know, there are, there, you know the, the killings that make the news and the killings that don't. So I wouldn't say every homicide scene is an inspiration. Um, I definitely borrowed a, from a lot of people's voices 
then I got accustomed to in Newark. You know, I, I always tell people this. Uh, occasionally, I record interviews a lot. Mostly, it's because my handwriting is terrible. Eighty-five <laughs> percent that, but a little bit of it because you know, I feel like the best dialogue is not going to come out of my head. It's going to come out of somebody else's. So sometimes I will keep recordings long after an interview is over if I just like the way a person speaks or their cadence, or maybe they use slang in a way that I hadn't thought interesting. And I sometimes borrow those or listen to them again if I'm trying to write a certain kind of voice. There's not like a one-for-one one person in my recorder who is a character in line of sight, but there's definitely a bit of mix and match of that going on. Well, it, you've alluded to one of the things that I found really interesting about Russell is he he does start off this book being... I don't know if world weary is, is the right term, but he's he's a little beaten down by the system and he's he's not doing uh, the thing he always dreamed of doing to to make ends meet and to put food on the table. So there is a little bit of of that almost indifference when he's confronted with this thing. But then he does have to almost accept his own you know morality and, and to say, no, no, this is something that is worth putting himself at risk. This is something that is worth fighting for to uncover the truth. I mean, I, I, was that something, his almost redemption story or him sort of finding his, his inspiration and his moral center again, was, was that a, a big driving force in creating Russell as a character? Yeah, that was definitely a, a big thing I wanted to do with him as I wanted him to grow maybe more as a human than as a reporter or as a investigator over the course of the story. And I think to some extent his arc, maybe if I'm, I don't want to be a little too heady or, or high horsed here, but it kind of reflects really the way people have viewed these situations over time. You know, I'm not saying every single time someone questions an officer's decision-making in these fatal shooting situations that they're right by any stretch, but people are at least looking at these things more nuanced than they would have um, maybe 10, 15 years ago. You know, we've always had this assumption. I personally had this worldview. I was raised by a police officer that it was very cops and robbers. And it was rare that you heard a dissenting voice against the police and didn't just automatically assume they had an ax to grind. And Russell kind of needs to go through that transformation as well. You know, he really made his bones as a reporter by having, you know, and it's a balance we deal with all the time in real life, you know, winning over cops, getting good sources in the public safety community, winning their trust. But then there's always a delicate dance of when you have to write something critical, sometimes maybe even about those particular people, how's it going to change you? And Russell really is wrestling with the idea of, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't like where his life is, but he's still fiscally comfortable. He's still doing okay overall, as long as he still has friends with badges. And clearly that's, something that's going to change if he's going to take this case on and follow the plot of the book. So before I let you go here, uh, you've been uh, a reporter for a number of years. You've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people along the way. So uh, as far as interviewing skills go, how am I doing? Uh, you're doing pretty excellent. You've let me ramble a while. You barely interrupted me. No, that's good. Honestly, like it's kind of fishing. Like ultimately I got to take the hook, right? You know, one uh, one of the one of my biggest failings as an interviewer is something you are better than me at. Honestly, is I talk too goddamn much. I like the sound of my own voice. I tend to step on my own questions to try to show the source that I'm, you know, I know what I'm talking about, and I'm really, you know, on the same wavelength, and you can trust me. But in reality, I end up trying to answer my own questions half the time and not gleaning things out of them. So you might have a future in this business. I mean, you know, the pay is low, and people are getting laid off all the time, and the president wants to have you killed. But, you know, beyond that, um, it's a really rewarding profession. 
Well, okay. Now, I know that you are newly engaged, and congratulations on that. When you're interacting with your fiance now, do you uh, does she sometimes feel like she's being interrogated, or do, are you able to sh- to shut off that sort of reporter brain <laughs> to be able to communicate with normal humans? I very wisely chose to marry a lawyer, so it's um, you know she's just as good at the Q and A as I am. Um, so if if you know it it, it doesn't it, it generally it's just a casual hangout but yeah if we start bantering or arguing um it very quickly turns into that kind of verbal sword fight so that can be fun except when i lose which is often does she box you in with those lawyerly uh, tricks where she's asks a question that she already knows the answer to and then catches you out that that has happened <laughs> yeah i don't i don't know how much i want to confess to my my ongoing losing streak cuz i do like her a lot well, that's good. That's a good quality to have in a fiance. Yeah, four, four days into a quarantine, no one's dead. We have a body count of zero in this apartment, which is very good. I can't decide if the quarantine is going to result in more uh, spousal homicides or are we going to have a, a new quarantine baby boom? I think it's going to, yeah, I think it's, it's a pre- the pregnancy versus divorce rate is going to be some interesting math. Although I have had at least two sources like casually make jokes about killing their husbands. And I'm like, we all work in crime. So like, I'm just taking that as a preview. <laughs> well, we'll have to check the statistics six, six months from now and see. That'd, that'd be a great PRA with the LAPD. If you could just tell me how many people just threw their husbands off a balcony during the quarantine, that would be great. <laughs> Well, okay, that's it for this time. I will be back again next week with another new show and a new guest co-host. I hope everyone out there is staying safe and healthy. Let us know how you're doing and tell us if you've read anything great lately over on Twitter, at WriterTypes. And you can always find the complete archive of all the episodes at WriterTypesPodcast.com for your virus bunker listening. And you can learn more about my books at EricBeatner.com. So thanks for listening and we'll talk to you again soon.